listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Ami, one of the PhD students with the program. Without a doubt, the biggest political issue in the world right now is the U.S. presidential election and the many controversies surrounding it. From issues with ballots and access to the very laws surrounding the election itself, the events of this week have done much to illuminate the problems plaguing the institutions of representative governance in America today. Amidst the noise and confusion surrounding the final tally, however, existed some causes for celebration, namely in the form of several historic victories by candidates representing a diverse array of traditionally marginalized communities in the U.S. From Richie Torres and Mondaire Jones becoming the first openly gay black men in Congress, to Sarah McBride becoming the first transgender state senator, these victories were undeniably historic not only because of their occurrence in the wake of one of the most controversial elections in recent history, but because of the way they breached the exclusionary American political system. From the classism of campaign finance to the patriarchal structure of candidate selection to the overarching racialized nature of party politics, the representative institutions of the American Republic have long since been marred by a structural exclusion of minority groups, which makes the advances of minority candidates this week a huge victory indeed. This isn't just an indictment solely targeted at the U.S., however, as structures of intersectional exclusion are part and parcel of democracy throughout the Western world. But the American example this week shows that maybe a fast-tracked institutional change is possible. This week on the Carleton Political Science Podcast, we discuss structures of minority exclusion in the representative institutions of the United States, Canada, and more with Professor Melissa Hausman. Professor Hausman is a specialist in American government with the Department of Political Science and has written extensively on comparative North American politics and the politics of gender throughout a myriad of institutional contexts. Just a side note, while we're releasing this episode on the heels of election night 2020, this podcast was actually recorded in the final days of the campaign. Regardless, though, Professor Hausman offers a fascinating look at the intersectional politics at play in the American election and beyond. We hope you enjoy. Professor Hausman, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Asif. So we're on the tail end of an American presidential election campaign where leadership has pretty much been front and center with both parties. You know, in the case of the Democrats, you know, you can look to Joe Biden and see his selection as the name on the ticket to be a pretty safe kind of status quo choice as far as the party structure goes. And I found this really interesting because you had this push from the progressive wing and these really strong female candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, and yet they still went with Uncle Joe. Why do you think the party ultimately went with Biden? Was it a matter of learning from the experiences of 2016, or does his selections uh, reflect something deeper in American politics? I would say the answer to that is both. Um, you know, as we keep hearing from Trump, Biden has been in office for 47 years. I mean, whether that's true or not, who knows? I mean, I guess in the combination of House and Senate years, whatever. So he had the networks. And again, given that legislatures were mostly, well, were uh, formed by men, you know, hundreds of years ago, it, it isn't a huge surprise that the people who are still pretty much in control of these places and have disproportionate access to the resources are, of course, men. So 
when we saw, for example, um, Biden getting, I think it was um, James Clyburn, um, you know, um, gave him a speech during the South Carolina primary, there were a lot of indications that the powers that be in the party, including, of course, those in the congressional hierarchy, were supporting Biden. Um, so it's it's not hugely surprising. It For me, it's disappointing that uh, a woman couldn't make it to the top right now. But of course, I'm happy with the Kamala Harris vice presidential nomination. The other problem is, of course, there's a there's a tendency, as there was when Geraldine Farrar was the first VP nominee in 1984, for one of the two major parties to say, oh, yeah, we tried that. You know, we tried to nominate a woman. We tried that in 2016. Didn't work. So let's go with the safe white guy in 2020. And I think Biden has been around long enough that, I mean, he wanted he wanted to run, I think, in 2016, but a combination of his son's death and Hillary sort of thought it was her turn in 2016. So it seems like Biden thought it was his turn in 2020. So a variety of factors, but really reflecting the differences in male versus female power. And of course, the different power of um, races in the Democratic Party, as well as, of course, the Republican. I'm glad that you mentioned male versus female power because there's this whole thing. And I always think of that uh, James Brown song, It's a Man's World, right? Because very much, <laughs> you know, politics, it's for better or worse, probably worse. Uh, it very much is, right? And we see this sort of masculinized nature of party politics evident everywhere. In the U.S., I think it provides pretty salient examples of that. So in what ways do gendered logics permeate politics? And how has gender become such a pronounced structure of power within democratic politics? And race and sexual orientation, um, indigeneity, transgender status. I mean, you know, pick any. Well, again, not that the guys who formed these various legislatures, be it Canada or Mexico or the U.S., not that they necessarily set out to make it a male-only club, but on the other hand, women in these countries were not seen as having property rights or the rights to vote. So it pretty much followed from that, that politics was a male-only business for so long. And it's really been the second since the second half of the 20th century that we've seen women start to say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. There are more voices that belong in politics. And of course, the civil rights movement in the United States, um, various movements in Canada, various movements in Mexico. But the issue is to make it happen. There are a lot of adjustments that need to happen to the rules. And one does need to have sympathetic male allies to make those happen. Because again, the historic controllers of these systems have been men. So while women can bring to the table their experiences of being marginalized and left out, you also, fortunately or unfortunately, really do need to access that hierarchy of male power. It seems we can count on a couple of hands, probably the few who've been able to really break past that and achieve you know, strength within executive positions. I know two of which you've studied quite extensively in former Prime Minister Theresa May in the UK and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in the US and even Kamala Harris, who we mentioned before, might be someone who falls into this category. 
How are they able to achieve their levels of success? And even with that success, how are they still subject to structures of patriarchy in the work they do? It's a very interesting question, and thank you for asking that. Um, it's very important. Well, there are a number of really great feminist theorists in political science who look at the different structures of men and women's careers. One of them I'll name off the bat is Karen Beckwith in the United States, who wrote an interesting article for the Politics and Gender Journal of the APSA in 2015, which talked about, in essence, the different time scales of politics for women to become leaders than men. And so women typically understand that they have to kind of grab the brass ring if it's offered to them because the chance will likely never come around again. So sometimes it means that the party is reaching out to them in desperation to kind of clean up politics and make everything shiny and bright. And I think that's what happened with Theresa May in England, in the UK, because of course, David Cameron, shall we say rather stupidly, but he did it, um, decided to try to get the Europe question and the party's history, as he said, of banging on about Europe. He tried to get that off his plate and externalize it out of the party. So he held that referendum in 2016. And actually, one of the things I'm writing about is how really a group of men affected that process of the referendum question and some other issues in terms of tying the government's hands. So lo and behold, the referendum loses in June 2016. Cameron didn't expect that. He then resigns. And according to the party caucus, the MPs, the leadership, they pretty much thought that Theresa May was a senior woman who had the credentials to lead. She had done an excellent job um, of being the home secretary under one of Cameron's previous cabinets uh, in the in the coalition cabinet. And I think people saw that thought that she, if anybody could handle this crazy question of, shall we leave the EU, but let's not talk about how to do it, they thought she could do it. The problem was, there's a lot of factors here, but the problem was there were a lot of, um, shall we say, nasty boys and a few nasty girls in the caucus who really didn't want to see her succeed, some of whom who ran for the leadership against her in 2016, some of whom didn't. But there was a group of, depending on the question, depending on the month, about 30 to 50 MPs in her own party who were just bound and determined not to support anything she brought up. So that was an enormous question. And of course, Brexit, which is getting closer um, in terms of the final details being hammered out, but is not yet complete, has been going on since then. So she, she resigned in 2019. But the question still isn't completely resolved. And it, it points to the necessity of getting a majority to support your policy views in these majoritarian legislatures, such as the House of Commons, the Canadian House, and of course, the United States House. I mean, they all share that feature. There are, of course, differences, but they are also majoritarian bodies. And as one of another colleague, Fiona Mackay from Scotland, has written about very adversarial very much using rules that privilege rhetoric and, frankly, posturing and shouting, especially in the Westminster parliaments. Shouting in the U.S. House is not really um, a favored tactic. 
But those kinds of things, again, set the expectations for what kind of behavior is okay. The thing that was really interesting that got my co-author and I interested in comparing Pelosi and May is that they were both facing huge challenges to their leadership right around the same time in December 2018 or the fall of 2018. So May had to face an intra-party, within-party, no-confidence vote in her caucus. And at the same time, after Pelosi got a record number of Democrats elected to the U.S. House, that is a record since 1974, you had some folks within the party, both some white men who had been hankering to replace her, including some from the Midwest who thought that she was too divisive. And then you had some others who basically thought she wasn't progressive enough. So she was getting it from both sides. And she really had to fight to get herself uh, reelected as speaker. Both Pelosi and May were, shall we say, good party citizens. Pelosi had been chair of the California Democratic State Party previously. She didn't run for office until she had raised her five kids. She came to office fairly late, but she's a consummate fundraiser. And this is part of the job of U.S. Speaker of the House, very different from speakers in other countries. They have to create congressional infrastructures to fund their candidates. So she's been superb at that. She's also superb at legislative coalition building and log rolling. Her father was mayor of Baltimore. She's got relatives who are members of Congress. She, she knows politics from inside out. And similarly, Theresa May uh, started off in politics. She, wa she was very involved in debating society and conservative association at Oxford. And when she married her husband, Philip, right after graduation, a lot of people thought Philip was going to be the one who went into politics. But Mrs. May worked in banking for a while, but then she got involved in local politics in England very early after her graduation and then became elected to the UK House of Commons in 1997. So both of them, and, and also I should say, May was the chair of the party in the early 2000s. So basically both have paid their dues as party builders, um, which is not necessarily the case for all men who get the job. If you compare May's career with that of Cameron, you can see a vast difference, and Cameron kind of parachuted in from the top, whereas May has been working in the party ditches <laughs> since at least the 1980s. Started from the bottom. Absolutely. And that's often, and there are many studies that tell us this, that women see the lower levels of politics as more friendly. I mean, it can fit in with their their other commitments to family. Um, they don't have to travel as much. It doesn't cost as much to run or to stay in office. So yeah, very, very often. And, and Mrs. May was one of those. She also was elected to local English councils before she ran for the House of Commons. I'm glad you mentioned 2018, because in the case of the U.S. midterm elections, we saw some pretty powerful examples of people from traditionally marginalized communities pushing for entry into the political arena. You know, new candidates from different points along the intersectional axes of the oppressed, whether in terms of gender, race, class, all of the above. But I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on how race intersectionality play into issues of leadership in particular. How do different institutional contexts like Canada, U.S., or the U.K. play into intersectional exclusion politics? Right. 
Well, it's an interesting question. And there are differences based on the specific institutional structures of each country. So, for example, in the United States, yeah, okay, so 2020, we've got the first African or Black uh, American female being run as a presidential or vice presidential candidate, not that others haven't tried. And we look at Shirley Chisholm's path-breaking effort in 1972, back when the Democrats had adopted proportional representation of, or proportional balloting, shall we say, in the primaries, and she got some delegates, but then got shut down at the national convention. Um, We know that record numbers of women of color are running in 2020 for Congress. Um, For example, um, 115 women of color are currently running in the U.S. for Congress, according to the Center for the American Women in Politics. Um, And that's, of course, a record high. In the Senate, we've got seven African-American candidates, most of them from the South, but one in Michigan. But unfortunately, only one of them is a woman. Um, So again, there's that male, female, and racial intersectionality. There's also a record number of indigenous women running in the United States this time around. Some of them ran in the primaries and got defeated, but some of them have made it into the general election. And it's interesting, too, because there's a record number of African-American women running under the Republican ticket for Congress this time around. Um, so it's there's there's fascinating intersections and overlappings, if you will, of race and gender, ethnicity, etc. In um, Canada, it was great, of course, that the prime minister said, you know, that he had his cabinet um, appointed of equal numbers of men and women after the first election, and he's more or less continued that, you know, in a in the minority government. But we also know that some of the polish of that was taken off by the public spat or disagreement with Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, Jane Philpott. And part of that, I mean, yes, that's about race and gender, but part of it also, of course, gets to the heart of what is politics about and who is it for in these majoritarian democracies, again, like Canada, the U.S., the U.K., because of course that was a huge disagreement over the favored status of SNC-Lavalin and the need for votes from Quebec, the need for SNC-Lavalin's money. So again, it wasn't, I mean, while the official disagreement presented itself as race and gender, it was also about the bedrock of frankly politics in the United States and Canada, which is money and the United States especially because we know um, in the U.S. right now, we're seeing a $14 billion election, which to my mind as an American is just absolutely ridiculous um, because there's so much more that could be done with that money. And there are differences, though, and I should say, sorry, I'll just add, there are distinct differences in terms of running for Congress. Now, again, there are different categories in which one can run. So incumbent is when one's already in and those are the people that are most likely to get reelected. Um, open seat is when there isn't an incumbent, and that's the second best way to run. And in particular, women tend to get elected, and um, those 
of diverse races get elected more in open seats because if you're taking on a white male incumbent, as the majority is, you're more likely to lose. And then, of course, the other category is challenger, which is the worst one to be in because you're trying to beat an incumbent. And within the categories in the U.S., when women and men run within those categories, they tend to win and lose at similar rates. They tend to be funded at similar rates. However, this is not true right now for African-American candidates, and they're noting a big difference. It's true for men, and it's especially true for women, that they're just not getting the same kind of funding that their white counterparts are. And frankly, without that kind of funding in the United States for a congressional race, the game is over. Um, The average cost of a House seat is $2 million in a race. The average cost of a Senate seat is $10 million. And of course, I mean, Elizabeth Warren spent over $40 million when she ran her race against Scott Brown in Massachusetts. So it, it can go up from there because there aren't spending limits in the United States. So that tends not to help things very much. In terms of the UK, there's a very interesting article by a woman named Agnès Collier, a political scientist who wrote about the Brexiteer members of the House of Commons who started getting elected in higher numbers from 2015 on. And what she noted is <laughs> um, to take on some of the conventional wisdom in British politics, she said, well, they were slightly less male and slightly less pale and stale. However, the interesting thing was that a lot of these folks who were pro-Brexit were also socially conservative. And one of the things I'm looking at is the intersection of socially conservative beliefs with being against a woman leader. And this was particularly prevalent in the British Conservative Party. It hasn't been there as much recently in the U.S. Democratic Party because, frankly, The Republican Party is the party of the South, so it's much more prevalent and used as a strategy there. So in terms of these different countries that you mentioned, you know, the Westminster systems of Canada and the UK share with the US a reliance on the single member district at a national level. And I know you've written and continue to write and teach on this subject. What would you like to emphasize about the ways in which this system undercuts diversity in election results and often promotes individualist and adversarial systems in legislatures? Well, particularly in elections, um, the Interparliamentary Union and uh, a group called the Quota Project and a group called IDEA, which I think comes out of Sweden. I mean, basically everybody who looks at women's rights of elections, including my colleague Bill Cross in the department, they know that in proportional representation, usually closed list systems where the voter can't rearrange the list, that those help women and diverse candidates get elected more. Whereas if you look comparatively, the single member district system is without a doubt the worst at electing women and diverse candidates. And the reason for that is And again, if you think about a spectrum here, the U.S. would be on the far end of that, i.e. puts the most burden on candidates, makes it the hardest for them to win election. I would say that the U.K. and Canada are a little further away on the spectrum. And then, of course, Mexico, which adopted mixed member proportional 
in the 1990s would be sort of the most friendly end of the spectrum where they divide the elections for the Chamber of Deputies according to both single member and then PR list systems as run by the parties and basically. So the single member district system, I'll just talk for a minute about the U.S. and the pitfalls again, for the most part, really without public financing and without campaign spending limits in the United States, basically it's an open game. And of course, you're running kind of on your own. Um, Since the 70s at the state level and the federal level, they've adopted primaries, which means that the parties won't really get involved, um, at least not openly, in terms of trying to pick a winner in that particular primary. However, of course, if you're one of the 80% of Congress that's male and you're an incumbent, you're very likely to be returned. It's also the case, as Jennifer Lawless and Richard Fox have pointed out, particularly regarding Congress in the United States, that incumbent women tend to get primary challenges more often than incumbent men. So that's another piece that's a problem. So fundraising, I mean, that's a huge issue, getting your network together, fundraising, (laughs) the question of running against incumbent or hopefully in an open seat, which doesn't turn up too much. Those kinds of things are particular problems in the single member districts in the United States because each contest is being run as though it's independent of others. In Canada, that's mitigated somewhat by the role of the parties in nominating candidates, although very many uh, political scientists have also noted that that's not perfect in Canada either. So Aaron Tolley, as well as our new dean, Brenda O'Neill, have written about these sorts of things in terms of the fact that you need to have more women in the riding associations, particularly as riding association presidents, or as Erin Tolley is looking at, Afro-Canadian and diverse representation among the presidents and the chairs and and the folks who matter in the ridings, because otherwise they'll just keep looking to the usual (laughs) candidates and guess what those look like? Oh yeah, white men. So basically the parties shall we say, matter more in candidate selection, but that can be a good or a bad thing. The other piece is that in Canada, there was a a good report issued by a parliamentary committee on the status of women in 2019 called Elector, and it looked at the average amounts that women candidates get from the parties, across the parties. I think the Greens weren't part of it, but basically only the Bloc Québécois gave women more money per capita. The other parties didn't. And then another piece just to look at, I mean, Canada just made history too, in terms of nominating the first uh, Black female to be the head of a party, the Greens. And as we know, I mean, look at the effect of the single member district system. I mean, she ran in Toronto, which was a liberal stronghold. Now a diverse woman, a diverse female candidate, the former broadcaster, got elected as the liberal holding the seat in Toronto. But there are huge questions, huge controversies, or maybe not huge, but rather rather deeply felt between the NDP and the Greens, because, of course, Elizabeth May asked Mr. Singh whether he'd keep the NDP candidate out of it in Toronto Centre, and he said, no, no, ma'am, I won't. 
And so there was a bit of a dust up between them. And again, the liberal party who had previously held the riding, of course, kept the riding. So we'll see if uh, Ms. Paul, the head of the Green Party, if they can find another good riding for her to run into to get a seat in Parliament. I know they're looking. It was interesting paying attention to that uh, by-election because there was this huge yeah. dip in liberal support there. And, you know, the green support, I think, went up something like 30 percent. Wow. But it just shows how open people are to, A, the party, B, a new face representing a lot. That's that's far more representative of that area of Toronto, you know, like an urban yeah. diverse center, of, yeah, of course. That's what people want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, here in the Ottawa area, a, a couple women got elected only after they changed the districts in 2015. I mean, they changed Nepean and they changed Canada and two women got elected there who had previously run who under the previous districting had not had luck. So, you know, Anita Vandenbelt had previously run against John Baird and that didn't work. And Karen McCrimmon had previously run against Gordon O'Connor. But once they changed that district and made it a little more or more progressive friendly, she won in 2015. You know, both these gals worked darn hard. I mean, they worked their tails off and that was part of both campaigns. But um, the districting and the drawing of the districts matters a lot. And just on that note, uh, Canada very wisely <laughs> made redistricting or and the counting of electors, that is the registration of those who vote, made it a federal responsibility in the early 20th century, as we know, based on the hoary old U.S. Constitution of 1791, basically the states still draw the districts. And so I often point this out in class. I mean, unlike the Canadian House of Commons, which can increase, the U.S. House has been set at 435 for quite a long time. And that's why this election actually matters so much in 2020. Every 10 years, after the census, the the states will be redistricted. And typically what will happen is the northern states who typically lose population will lose a house district to the south who are typically gaining population. And that's important for a lot of reasons. One, of course, the representation in the house. Two, the house is part of the electoral college formula. And three, it matters in terms of federal funding, how many congressional seats there are. So there's a whole lot of reasons why in the U.S., the redistricting, and again, this whole you know single-member district thing is seen as a zero-sum game. A little earlier, you mentioned the gender parity um, in the cabinet under Prime Minister Trudeau. And I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on quota systems? Do they lead to more substantive policy, or does it kind of create its own problems? What do you think? Well, it would depend if we're talking about quotas and parties, which say, for example, the Labour Party in the UK, not, not quotas, but egalitarian nominations of women in the NDP in Canada. No, I don't see any problems with those policies whatsoever. And in fact, they've worked. Mm. It can be hard to assess them overall. In Mexico, there was in the early years a sense that the quotas were only adopted by the PRI, which was desperate to hold on to power as it was losing its grip around, you know, 2000. I think in the assessments of many strong writers on Mexican politics, such as Jennifer Piscopo at Occidental College, who actually spoke to my class this fall, 
the overall upshot has been generally good because, again, the, the idea there is to promote more diverse viewpoints in the legislatures themselves and in policy outputs. And so if you don't have legislatures comprised of anybody but white men, one shouldn't be surprised if one gets white bread policy outputs, which is what we get. Um, I'm stealing so, that, by the way, white bread policy outputs. <laughs> That's going in my toolkit. Feel free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, the notion, and as as many really good um, writers on again feminist politics and feminist policy, another person whom I greatly admire Sarah Childs, who's one of the key authors on British politics and women. So they talk about descriptive representation, which is, of course, numbers representation. And symbolic representation is where young women or, say, young Black Canadians or young Latinas would say, oh, yeah, this is the percentage in Congress and they're active and I very much, you know, support them. And so they would see it as bringing about their eventual entry into politics. And many people think Kamala Harris will perform that function in the United States. Substantive representation then links the descriptive representation, i.e. the presence of different groups, to policy outputs. And there is evidence that in systems that either have quotas for all parties or some parties, and again, typically they're most successful in the proportional representation systems because you're kind of fighting against each other if you adopt them in single member district systems. But again, it has worked within the party for labor in the UK and for the NDP in Canada. The problem is, again, you know, single member district system, the NDP has never formed the government of Canada. So again, that's sort of how they fight against each other. But yeah, I think people would say that in general, quotas can be helpful because there, there are two different strategies that are that are looked at. And Pippa Norris is one of the people, um, a grand dame of political science and sociology. And she talked about the incremental strategies, which is a strategies of, yeah, let's just kind of see what happens and maybe we'll help women as much as we can, but we're not going to bend over backwards to do it and we're not going to adopt specific policies. So that's what the Conservative Party of Britain did for most of its history. Similarly in Canada, same with the Republican Party and really, frankly, the Democrats for a lot of their history, too, versus the fast track strategies. And fast track strategies are quotas. And typically when you adopt fast track strategies, you do get more. It depends, you know, if you're putting in quotas for gender or if you're putting in quotas for uh, race-based groups, as in some multi-ethnic democracies or reserved seats, they can be helpful as well. So I would say they're generally helpful. Obviously, there's resistance to them because they're because of their fast-track nature. They're much more clear. They're much more visible. And so, if you're going to get a backlash against people, you'll probably get them in the quota systems because. Not surprisingly, those who have been historically advantaged will whine and complain that the rules are now helping women and groups of racial diversity when, in fact, you know, it should remain white male dominated forever. It's interesting. That's sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up on that. Don't you dare worry. <laughs> yeah. 
So with the states we've been talking about today, it seems that, you know, the arc of institutional changes, you know, in line with what Pippa Norse was saying, very much slow and gradual, right? It's kind of those piecemeal changes, but one hopes it's really bent towards greater inclusivity in the long run. But I'm wondering, like, within the Canadian, the UK or the US context, what yeah. sort of fast track policies could realistically be implemented, in your view, to change this, the nature of leadership and executive authority in politics, you know, and kind of move us away from, you know, the old boys club? towards a more representative form of party politics because really we're talking about representation when we're talking about significant portions of the population being essentially excluded and feeling alienated from politics yeah it's a real problem i mean the one thing that i'm heartened by is the incredible turnout in the united states i mean they're saying that already 73 million people have voted and it's more than half of all the people that even voted in 2016, the numbers. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know yet, but I'm thinking that that's probably also a lot of young people who don't tend to vote in the same numbers. There's also a number of voters for the first time. But again, does it take <laughs> the worst president in United States history and more than 200,000 people dying of a disease? Is that what it takes to get people fired up about politics and participating? I mean, one would certainly hope not. But, you know, with Obama's historic candidacy in 2008, we saw a record African-American turnout, including folks who had never thought their vote counted and so hadn't registered or voted before. Many people, um, certain studies say that in 2012, Obama was reelected largely because of the efforts of African-American women who turned out in huge numbers and really worked hard to help him. So it does seem that in these systems, it's kind of episodic, unfortunately. So there either has to be some really good stuff going on, like, okay, you know, Obama and Obama's candidacy, historic candidacy is the first African-American male um, for president, Kamala Harris for uh, first African-American VP, first African-American female VP. Um, I guess historic nature of Justin Trudeau's candidacy, not, not in terms of being a white male, but in terms of, I mean, he said in 2015, if you'll recall, that this is the last election that Canada is going to run under the single member plurality system. Well, you know, that they got a commission together and then they kind of dumped it. But as, as I've mentioned, I mean, Mexico has added uh, mixed member proportional onto its single member district systems. I mean, Mexican politics itself has a lot of internal problems and has not responded actually very well to COVID. But hey, I mean, they were very brave to do that. And then, of course, the party quotas on top of it. And again, it's been a very gradual sort of change in Canada and the UK, where the representation or nomination uh, percentages, parity percentages have been in the labor and the NDP. It's interesting, too. I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybould recently wrote a piece that I've used in class about could we return to, you know, matrilineal sorts of politics that indigenous bands used to use in Canada before, you know, of course, the 
colonial settlers decided, oh no, you know, um, indigenous politics should be run along the lines of white male majoritarian societies and stopped that and basically disenfranchised a lot of, you know, women who were, and men, of course, but women in particular who were running those bands. So um, that that's an interesting supposition too. But yeah, I think the bottom line is people have to be convinced that politics is relevant to their lives and they have to be convinced that it's worth the, the trouble and aggravation to register and vote. And of course, the U.S. makes that the hardest too, because the onus is always on the individual, depending on what state you live in and what's the deadline and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's all sorts of little tricks that are in there in the U.S. And we're seeing some of them now, actually, in terms of depressing the vote of different groups who would like to turn out more. And so we've seen at least four cases at the U.S. Supreme Court over the last week about extending the deadlines for mail-in ballots. And at least so far, the Supremes have ruled that two states can't extend the deadline and two states can. So maybe they're trying to be fair. I don't really know what's in their heads. But, you know, bottom line is you've got the issues. People have to feel that it matters. But then you've also got the system. And yeah, anything that goes toward a system of um, increasing the grassroots, increasing the opportunities for people who feel left out, I think is a good thing. In the U.S., we've just completely gone, I would say, the wrong way since the 70s. I mean, yes, we've got record African-American and female and indigenous and LGBT representation, but the costs of these elections just keep soaring every two to four years. And you can't have a lot of grassroots candidates if they're not financially supported. So kind of the last thing I just want to ask, and it's... It's related to what we were talking about, but kind of away from it. And, you know, what have you been working on? Tell us a bit about your research and the sorts of scholarship that you're producing right now. Well, um, most up to date, I'm working on this Theresa May and Nancy Pelosi book. And what we've done is, I mean, Theresa May, obviously prime minister, but I'm looking her at her mainly as a legislative leader and trying to craft a majority coalition uh, within her party for the Brexit vote, which wasn't legally binding, by the way, but it was politically binding and she and the conservatives treated it that way. So that's the book I'm most uh, currently working on. Um, just before that, I did a piece for an edited volume by Jill Vickers, former colleague in the department, an emerita professor, uh, Cheryl Collier and Joan Grace, which is a feminist handbook on uh, federalism and diversity and gender. And I wrote a piece on that because there has been a strong impetus by a gal who's the head of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare in the Department of Health and Human Services, Seema Verma, who's, who worked with Pence when he was governor of Indiana. And there's been this really underhanded attempt to do to Medicaid, which is, of course, the healthcare framework for those below the poverty line. It's existed in the U.S. since the 60s to do to that what Clinton basically did to cash-based social assistance in the 1990s, along with the Republican-dominated Congress led by Newt Gingrich in the House, to basically block grant it and require workfare. And the reason block granting in the U.S. is so important is that unlike 
programs which have specific mandates in them, you know, you have to spend this money on, I don't know, school lunches or something like that. Block grants, governors love block grants because it's basically free money. And there's frankly sometimes little accountability. And so they can move those funds around, for example, to pave highways or do other things. And so it's really a problem that this work by Verma in particular and HHS and the Trump administration and Pence, he's involved, that they've all been working to undercut what little exists in the United States for healthcare for those below the poverty line. And going along with that, what I wrote about in that chapter is what these folks often do is misrepresent the nature of poverty in the United States. They try to do a racial splitting and cutting apart, basically, where they say, oh, you know, it's all African-Americans that are benefiting from social assistance or Medicaid, and it's all whites who aren't. Well, baloney. I mean, the majority, the fact is the majority of the U.S. population is white. So guess what? The majority of the population on social assistance and on uh, Medicaid, the, the, the um, health care for those, you know, below the poverty line, they're white, too. And what it is, it, it's a revising or a reviving, I guess is a better word, of a tactic that Nixon used to gain the White House in 68 and to regain it in 72, the Southern strategy, which was real, and, and Trump's used this very successfully too. It's how he got elected in 2016. So basically everything bad in the United States that happens is, you know, African-Americans fault and these poor whites have to you know, basically pay for all this. And again, you know, note the sarcasm here, but it's a strategy and the Trump administration has been trying to use it with regard to Medicaid. Now, fortunately, a lot of the federal courts that have taken this policy up because it's not surprisingly been challenged, fortunately, a lot of those federal courts put stays or injunctions on the block granting so that it hasn't really been implemented to a huge, well, it hasn't been able to be continued to be implemented. There were certain states that did implement it for a while until they got caught up by the courts, caught out by the courts. So Indiana was one of them. Uh, Kentucky was another. Very, very punitive. And again, the piece to draw on is the, the shaming and the blaming and try to make something about a specific race that actually has nothing to do whatsoever with race at all, but has to do with the miserly nature of the U.S. public safety net and the fact that things are not fairly distributed. It's it's not a race-based question at all, certainly not in the way that Nixon framed it in the 60s and certainly not the way that Trump and his cronies have framed it since 2016. Well, anyways, I don't want to take up any of your time. And thanks for being so great about doing this. Thanks so much for doing this, SC. I hey, appreciate it. No worries. This has been great. Happy like, to. It's been such a good conversation. And, well, you enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk soon. Yeah, you too. Take right. care. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci. dot poli sci.